Welcome to Goodwill Hunters. Here, we'll explore the ultimate question, how to use profits for purpose. It's been said business must help solve the global challenges we face. In this podcast, we explore how. How can the private and not-for-profits work better together? What truly constitutes aid and progress? And how can we transform international development? Here, we talk with the thought leaders, the game changers, the intellectuals, and the campaigners. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn, and this is Goodwill Hunters. Hello, and welcome to episode 23 of Goodwill Hunters. Today on the show, we have Paul Brown. Paul is the CEO of Child Fund New Zealand, a position he has held for 14 years. Child Fund is a leading development agency working in 65 countries and in New Zealand raises $16 million per annum from private and institutional donors. Child Fund New Zealand supports over 40,000 children in six communities throughout Africa, Asia and the Pacific. In his time as CEO, Paul has increased funding by 235% and has grown the portfolio of grants from zero to $8 million and has submitted 26 proposals, of which 22 received funding, which is considered to be the highest rate for the sector. Child Fund New Zealand has become the benchmark for best practice on diversifying income and reducing business risk through innovative long-term partnerships. More specifically, Paul and his team secured a $3.5 million grant from Fonterra, signifying an enduring willingness to work with the private sector. Paul has studied at the Harvard Kennedy School, looking at performance management for -for not-for-profit organisations, and Paul and his team work closely alongside the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in New Zealand, among numerous other credentials, which we'll try to unpack in this episode. Paul, it's great to have you here. Okay, so to begin with, you're regarded as a leader in navigating the way that the funding environment is changing for -for not-for-profits. Uh, which is a topic we cover quite extensively on this show. And and more specifically, we discuss the decline of traditional sources of funding and and the emergence of new sources of funding like impact investment. So I want to start with that. I understand you recently took part in a panel discussion looking at how not-for-profits can access impact investment funds. So can you start by giving us your take on that? Sure, Rachel. And and, and perhaps the question should be phrased a little bit differently in terms of why we exist and why we're here. We're not here for funding. I think all NGOs, it's very um, easy to sort of get attracted or seduced perhaps by the the funding equation, but we're here for impact and that's going to remain first and foremost. But the landscape is changing um, and I suspect for many NGOs and many people working in development, it really is the perfect storm where we're seeing a whole lot of shifts around the world where um, there's appetites for new forms of finance, there's growing appetite from different sectors to be involved in development and to support development, including the private sector, which I think we'll talk about a lot more later on. And we're seeing, I think, the public change their attitude too towards um, how impact is funded. But above all, we're seeing real desire and real appetite in the communities where we work to embrace new funding models and new business models and new ways of doing business. And then underpinning all that is this sort of challenge or um, growing pressure that we face to to remain relevant and to remain sustainable through finding new forms of funding. So you bring all that together, and it's a really exciting time. 
Yeah, it is. And you you mentioned something there that we don't talk about as much, which is that the communities you actually work in are open to new sources of funding. So we usually talk about the organisations themselves being open to that, but less so the, the communities and the beneficiaries. So can you go into that? Yeah, it's always a sort of um, difficult tension that we have to run our businesses in, in terms of we've got to have the donor be donor centric on one hand and program led on the other, and it's trying to keep those sort of opposing forces and an equilibrium, which not everyone can really do in their minds or in their work. But certainly, it's from the work we've been doing with communities throughout Africa and Asia. And I was in Kenya last month. What really surprised me was how investment ready the, the communities were, and I think to some degree we sort of underestimate that. At our own peril, the fact that we've been very much funding these communities through traditional philanthropic means, either through grants or through private funding. And we've almost been guilty of, of we know that develop, development in some cases can lead to welfare states, but also even if it's not, if it does have a, an outcome in mind or an you know, impact in mind, I think it's very easy to, to, for us all to generalise and believe that these communities aren't actually ready for investment themselves. And I saw that firsthand in Kenya, meeting these particularly a whole lot of dairy farmers who really understood the whole mechanics and the investment equation. So that really gave me a lot of confidence, the fact that this really is the perfect time to be shifting or blending our forms of finance and how we um, help these communities out of poverty. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. And it is it is a generalisation that we make in it about investment readiness and presuming that a lot of the communities we work in are not investment ready. Yeah, and it's whether we've been in development too long or we just see that, you know, the, we talk about the flow of money has been sort of very much uh, one way. Um, and we've created that that environment. So we really are talking about empowering communities. They are ready for it. They're ripe for it. And I think we have to give them the licence to really flourish. And that, that's what we're about. It's sort of, seems like we we really are making our purpose come to life. So it's long overdue and... Yeah, hopefully this is the catalyst, the start of a whole new generation of activity that we can fund through different means. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. And we'll get into the private sector and how the private sector can help with that shortly. Um, But what I want to ask you about first, there's some really major changes happening in New Zealand at the moment around the way that the New Zealand Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade is funding not-for-profits, and we're encountering some similar trends in Australia. Um, I know in New Zealand that's around the Pacific Reset. So can you share with us what the Pacific Reset is and, and your thoughts on how this is affecting Child Fund? Yes, sure thing. Um, I probably put, should put some caveats around this, the fact that uh, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade is our largest donor um, currently, so I have to be very respectful. <laughs> um, and I'm also probably the worst person to comment on the ministry's stance. But, no, it, it is exciting times, and I think New Zealand takes a leading position in the Pacific. I think we have some um, nuances that makes us different as a country, clearly from Australia and from our neighbours across the ditch. But the Pacific reset, I think, is exciting. We're yet to see the details. Um, Minister Peters is certainly advocating and, and promoting New Zealand as being, I guess, one of the the leading nations in the Pacific for those uh, countries that are that are in our backyard. What it means to INGOs and what it means to funding really is yet to be seen. Um, there's some new funding windows that are yet to be fully crystallised. Um, but I think, similar to DFAT and other donors around the world, there is this trend to working or a desire to work with fewer 
bigger and, and, and deeper programs that involve either consortia or collaboration between NGOs and different agencies. So we see that coming through too. Um, as I said, we don't know the details fully yet, but the good news is compared with the previous government, which had a very much an economic lens, we see this government as having very much a strongly social lens. So there's a lot of challenge in the Pacific, as you well know. There's, there's gender issues, there's, um, there's clearly climate change, which is real and prominent in many of these uh, low-lying nations. And we're also seeing some issues around localisation. So New Zealand, I think, as a, as a donor, has had to change its stance. Um, we've, I think the government sees itself not as the biggest player, but perhaps one of the fairer players that works in the Pacific. So... I think this reset is, is, is really timely and uh, it provides a lot of opportunity. Whether that opportunity trickles down to INGOs remains to be seen. Um, it's, what's been interesting over the last few months, I think the reset has got a lot of media attention um, and sector attention over in Australia. We've been approached by many other INGOs who are Australian-based looking to come to New Zealand and say, well, we'll have a little bit of this Pacific reset if it comes to us, but we don't know if that's going to happen. So uh, I guess it's a case of saying, watch this space. Yeah, and the trend towards collaboration and forming consortiums is exactly the trend that, that I see affecting the development sector in Australia. Um, I'm interested in your take on why there is this newfound emphasis on working in a consortium as opposed to working alone. I'm assuming that by collaborating you get a, a deeper and more effective footprint, and I'm not sure whether that's always the case or whether that's evidence. So... By working with other people, I guess that would give the government greater comfort that you've got um, broader thinking and, and broader areas of expertise. But whether it actually plays out and leads to higher and better impact, I think remains to be seen. That's going to be the challenge. Um, but certainly, uh, I think there's a trend for all INGOs, and there's a lot of good research out there, and a lot of good discussion papers saying, what's the space that INGOs should work in? Is it in advocacy or is it in humanitarian response, or is it in development? Or is it two of those three, or one of those three? So I think a lot of INGOs are really trying to grapple with that too and find out what is our strength and how do we you know, leverage those strengths even further without being too distracted and trying to juggle all three. So that leads to the sort of the collaboration approach and saying, well, how do we do things better for the communities that we serve through working with others? So I, 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 I'm... As I said, I don't know if it's fully proven, but there is opportunity there, I think, to work alongside other, other agencies. And it may be alongside other um, entities, not just other NGOs. It could be research institutions, the private sector, or whoever. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good answer. So let's let's look specifically at Child Fund now. So a, a key part of Child Fund's work is your roadmap approach. So what does the roadmap approach entail? And, and why is it a necessary part of this contemporary not-for-profit landscape? Thanks, Rachel. Hopefully this won't be too long an answer, but about 10 or so years ago, we made quite a, a big decision to consolidate where we work. Um, at the time, we were predominantly funded by child sponsorship, which is a very steady uh, long-term funding stream which helps agencies do good development work. But we found that our child sponsorship programs were actually, were actually projects. We had children scattered in 850 projects that we were supporting around the world through other colleagues and Child Fund Alliance. And we felt we just weren't making sufficient, uh, sufficient impact by being spread so thin. So we made the decision to progressively wind back 
um, where those children were uh, sponsored or where our funds were being allocated and consolidate them and concentrate them into five or six key geographies, many rural communities in Africa and Asia, and put a virtual fence around those and have all the funding to be earmarked as coming from Child Fund New Zealand, whether it be child sponsorship funding, funding through other uh, forms of fundraising or through government grants. So as it evolved, we learned we had long-term funding provided through child sponsorship. We had short-term funding um, funded through appeals, through writing to our supporters and asking them to uh, kindly donate some more funding. And we had medium-term funding for quite complex projects supported by the New Zealand government. So we had this very, very sound funding model um, that allowed us some predictability and allowed us to actually plan for how we work with these communities over a generation, because that's what Child Fund is all about. We're here to help children to thrive, and the idea being that we graduate or leave the communities where we work within a generation. So within 20 to 25 years, we have a whole lot of markers and milestones that the community have identified that they want to achieve um, through Child Fund's support or um, funding. What that then led to was this roadmap approach where we used to slice and dice the plan sort of to a three-year planning cycle, but we realised as we stack these three-year planning cycles end-to-end, we could then develop a 12, 15, 18, even 20-year view of what that community wants to work, work on. So these roadmaps are a co-designed tool that allows us to understand where the community is going, allows the community to understand what their markers are and what they want to achieve. But it's quite a powerful tool, the fact that it allows us to tell the before the during and the after story as we um, attract support. And I know a lot of thrust of this sort of conversation with you, Rachel, is, you know, is how we orient ourselves towards impact investing and different forms of finance. The roadmap is a really potent tool that allows us to have that conversation with investors. So it's, it's been a very, very good um, tool for us, and it's a very empowering tool for the community. So they can see where they're going, um, they can hold us to account, and we can also hold the community to account in terms of we can see the plan and what's due in the next three to five years and beyond. Yeah, yeah, that makes so much sense. And and what's really nice about what you've just said is that you've reminded me of our very first episode of this podcast, which is very poignant as this is our second last episode of season two. And in that first episode, we talked about the importance of exit strategies. And we discussed you know, I I haven't worked for enough not-for-profits to know how common exit strategies are, um, but it is something we talk about on the show and, and the importance of being upfront about that early. Yeah, absolutely. And the roadmap gives us um, gives that exit more potency, more clarity. Um, and as the conversation has sort of evolved in the last two to three years about these new forms of finance, you know, when I was in Kenya last month, I kept hearing from all levels of the community, a whole range of different stakeholders, all I heard was the phrase, we mean business, we mean business. So going back to the earlier conversation we're having, the communities are ready for this and uh, the roadmap has, has helped us sort of navigate that that path. Um, and how we express those, like, we, we print them, but I, uh, I guess as soon as they're printed, they're sort of out of date because they are a dynamic tool. But there's such a very simple way of explaining what, is often quite a complex conversation to be had. 
Yeah. Now you mentioned that the roadmap um, helps you in discussions with investors. So let's talk about impact investment. Since you began exploring impact investment and social enterprises for Child's Fund, what I mean, what have you learned, and what have been the greatest successes? Hey, look, we we are early on this pathway in terms of um, attracting funding. We've, we've we've looked at this roadmap, um, the six communities we work with, and identified. What are the income generating activities that those communities um, that are investable, and we've particularly scoped them out further with communities in both Kenya and Zambia. And one of the things we did learn is that because we've been working with Kenya, it's a community called Amali. It's a small town halfway between uh, Nairobi and Mombasa. And one of the things we've learned from working with the Amali community, because we've been there so much longer than other communities their evolution or their pathway through that development roadmap is so much better and stronger than um, than other communities that we've only been with a shorter time. Now, that sounds bleeding obvious from for, for us today, but it's not until you actually meet the community face-to-face and hear them and hear what they're facing that, that it reinforces that. So we're early in our pathway towards investment. We're yet to raise funds, but we have identified some um, activities, mainly around agriculture through... Uh, planting a superfood called Moringa and through dairy farming, converting the Maasai herdsmen to changing their herd from being uh, beef cattle to being dairy cattle, which actually the women tend to raise as opposed to the men. So there's a whole lot of empowerment and um, flow-on benefits that that we sort of never really thought through at the time. But we've learned a lot. Um, And it's still early days. One of the things... uh, I can't underscore enough, it's, it's huge cultural change for us as an organisation. This is for Child Fund New Zealand. So at, right across the organisation, from staff through to supporters to our board, in terms of getting ready to sort of be investment ready or accept investments, means a huge shift in um, attitude and culture. Uh, and I think non-profits traditionally are very, very risk-averse. We, we, we don't like failure. We don't like spending donors' money and not getting the results that we think they demand or command from us. So to allow people to take risks and fail has been a real shift for us. And that's been one of the biggest lessons for me as a leader is to actually create that space and safety for people to fail um, and and learn from it. There's a saying we have at Child Fund that there's no such thing as failing, there's only failing to learn. So we've got to create the environment and the context that people can try stuff in all aspects of the business and fail safely. Um, another thing we've learned and we've spent the last two years or so is stopping certain activities within the business that were costing us money and not generating any return. And when we started talking to people in the investment world, before we even embark on attracting investment funds, someone said to me, you realise that investors will invest in you as an entity before they invest in the project. So how we translated that, what that meant for us was the last two years we spent a lot of time stopping it weren't um, financially sound and focusing on activities that, that were um, going to help us and that's led to us to have a much stronger balance sheet. So if we develop investment proposals in the coming months, investors can look at our own balance sheet and say, look, this, this, this is not some fragile entity, it's actually going to be sustainable. So it's been a, quite a big lesson for us. Um, in terms of other lessons, this takes time in terms of I think we're all impatient, but we're going to recognise that this is a shift. Um, 
you've got to, as well as strengthening the balance sheet, you've got to build risk capital. So you've got a nest egg there that you can actually deploy to experiment with or to to match investments. So if an investor is going to give us money, we want a child fund to be prepared to say, look, we'll back, back you, you know, we'll put some money into this project ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things we are, we are discovering, and this is reinforced when we travelled through Africa, through both Zambia and Kenya recently, there is this log ahead where um, INGOs such as Child Fund have got a very deep and intimate relationship with our local partners through these uh, communities that we've been working with for a decade or so and hope to be working with them for another decade or so. So we've got good, strong relationships there. But the projects that we're looking to invest in are still really small scale. We're talking two, three, maybe four US million dollars. And the pushback we're getting from the investment community is that's just too small for us to look at. Come back to us when you've got a deal worth 25, 30 or 40 US million dollars. So the challenge we have is those are still exciting projects we see that are going to empower the community and and drive them out of poverty and give them an economic lift. It's just how we find the right funder who can see that Mm. and not uh, see them as being too rinky-dink or too small. So there's a, there's a whole lot of challenge there. But one of the big things, Rachel, we've really learned is that this is not either or thinking, this is and thinking. We talk about impact investing or investing in social enterprises, adding to what we already do. It's not replacing what we already do. And that's going to be a big, a big thing that we all have to keep underscoring. Yeah, that's that's such an important point and you've explained that so well. I, I think the interesting juxtaposition that we have here is is you've explained investment readiness for the communities that you're working in and then you've explained investment readiness for Child's Fund itself. Um, and those are two very different processes of investment readiness. And, and I think that, that phrase, uh, I think there's a lot of disagreement amongst the sector on what we actually mean when we're saying that a business or an organisation is investment ready. Yeah, and I think it's important to get our own house in order and that's meant for us changing mindsets and in some cases changing some of the players in our own team to to embrace that. Um, And as I say, we are still got to keep doing what we're always doing. We still need the strong fundraisers, we still need strong programme folk, we still need strong finance folk to make our business work. But we need to bring in new mindsets and people who are analysts, who understand the investment world, who can um, somehow meld that with what we're trying to achieve in terms of impact. And that's quite a unique species that we're trying to find. Mm. Yeah. Now, now, at a broader country level in the Pacific, I, I know from working for the World Bank that the Pacific is a very, a very specific uh, region to work in and nothing makes me more uncomfortable than seeing development lessons from some major Asian country being applied to Tuvalu or Kiribati. They're, they're very different and unique countries to work in. So how do you see um, uh, social impact investment funds being used by countries in the Pacific? Yeah, Rachel, you've really described the Pacific as, a, as such a unique place. Um, and throughout all child funds work, and this is one of the benefits of working in distinct and focusing on fewer sort of communities but having a deeper relationship. We're seeing a lot of South-to-South learning. So what can our colleagues in Timor-Leste learn from uh, a community in Vietnam? What can Vietnam learn from Zambia and so forth? So we're seeing that happen. But then you, you dial that into the Pacific and it's such a different place to, to work. Um, 
you know, all the facts and figures, very, very scattered populations, tiny populations, um, complex needs, a difficult place to work. And then how you um, weave that into the social enterprise conversation is both good and bad, and um, although it's not that binary, but, but let's not forget, these communities are exceptionally resilient. Um, they're very entrepreneurial. And they've, they've been running social uh, enterprises far longer than we've labelled it. So social enterprise in the Pacific has, has been around for millennia, far longer than you know, we've been talking about this in the past five or so years. And I think we need to respect that. I think we need to listen a lot better and find out what's made those uh, enterprises survive, what's helped them to flourish, um, and learn and, and listen before we go in and say we, we think we have this great panacea or this great solution because I think it's going to be the learning and the listening that will actually drive better outcomes for all. But we know, look, social enterprise in the Pacific, um, I mentioned before the dairy farmers in, in, in Kenya where we were pushed back from investors saying it's not a large enough scale. That's going to be um, even more amplified if that's a sort of a paradoxical term in the Pacific where we've got even smaller populations smaller land masses um, and huge geographical, uh, geographic distances that if we are producing goods or the communities are producing goods, that you know, those goods have to be shipped. So there's a lot of uh, challenge with social enterprise in the Pacific too. Um, and then one thing you talked about lessons learned earlier on, one of the things we've also learned and recognised is that as a social enterprise grows um, and the community supports that enterprise, there has to be a level of export thinking, um, and that's not export between countries. It could be between communities or between villages. So I think one of the dangers of um, feeding or creating social enterprises is if they are just within a small economy and that economy can't grow, the enterprise can't grow. So for a lot of the communities we work with, we're doing very well in strength in our communities, but how do we expand their, their mindset? How do we expand their market? And how do we create the market linkages for them producing whatever goods or service they produce to other communities that can buy from them? That's that's a real challenge, I think, and that gets really exacerbated in the Pacific, where those communities aren't just down the road. There are many hundreds, if not thousands, of kilometres across the ocean. Yeah. Yeah, it, that, that is a really significant challenge. Uh, and I, I think you've explained the Pacific landscape so well there. Now, I want to get onto the topic of some of the work that you're doing with the private sector and starting with grants to begin with. Um, it's an increasingly competitive landscape. And I, I would say that that many of our counterparts in the not-for-profit sector would agree that grant applications are one of the hardest parts of their job. Uh, you have had a lot of success uh, with obtaining grants. So can you reflect on that? You know, what makes a grant application successful? Sure. I'll look at the question twofold and um, I'll, I'll do the latter part first. You know, what makes a grant um, application successful? It's not me. I think it's the wonderful team at Child Fund who makes those successful um, applications. I've got some wonderful people who work alongside me at Child Fund, so I need to congratulate and celebrate them. But I think fundamental to any successful grant is is really having quality information from partners. And that goes back to our whole roadmap approach where we've been able to tell the 5, 10, 15, 20-year story through those grant applications. We've been able to show um, real evidence, real impact, 
But also, I think any application, you've got to have the courage really to push things and apply for uh, what we describe as real tough projects. Um, we can get all academic and say we're going to have a clear theory of change and make sure that that uh, is, delivers real meaningful impact. Without that, you won't get funding. Um, but rather than just treat, uh, and this is, I think, what's made child funds um, application rate so successful, rather than treat each grant as a project, being able to articulate how that project fits within a greater program of work, I think that's been very, very helpful with our regard. But dialing that into the, uh, or linking that to the conversations with the private sector, having come from the private sector, um, and I think the private sector is going through a huge amount of change in how it approaches, how it gives its own money away. And, and I was, this is 15, 20 years ago when I was working in the private sector, we used to sponsor activities mainly for a branding exercise. And I think CSR still um, bubbles along in some entities, but CSR is, is very much yesterday's story. So I think a whole lot of corporations and medium and small-sized businesses are really challenging how they actually behave within their greater community, how they develop social good. And we've seen the whole lot, you know, the whole customer base, the investors through uh, the equities markets, really challenge businesses as their, what is their license to operate. So thankfully some businesses are responding. There is some evidence that these businesses are aligning their activities towards SDGs, which I think is incredible. Um, But it's only piecemeal. It hasn't become completely endemic, and I think there's a long way to go. But we've had some good success working with the private sector. We had a, a very significant grant from Fonterra, for early childhood programs throughout Asia. And again, it's, it's like the, the applications for um, government or institutional donors. It's being able to share a common language. Um, it's being able to understand what the private sector is grappling with and how you can help them um, achieve their goals without selling out on your own values. Um, but also looking to how we can learn from the private sector. And for us at Child Fund, we, we looked at the, the private sector because... How can we learn from different organisations? How have they changed their culture as we go through cultural change? How have they developed their teams? How have they approached innovation? Um, and what are the different levers the private sector can apply? And, and for instance, at Child Fund, as with many NGOs, we don't have any debt. We don't have any equity. So how can we learn to apply those levers that, that the corporate sector does so well? So there's a lot we can learn from working in the private sector. Yeah, yeah, and I think those levers are, are a really interesting part of it and, and yeah, navigating the growth um, of, a, of a not-for-profit organisation. Yeah, it's doubly hard. It might be less so in Australia, but New Zealand's uh, corporate sector is so much thinner and a lot of corporations tend to focus that they are going to help uh, the not-for-profit sector or the for-purpose sector. It really tends to be charity begins at home, so they do look to support local local good, which is great. We should applaud that. But I think the conversation is a lot trickier when you're trying to advocate, hey, look, why don't you work alongside us and you will help children in Kiribati or you will help children in Timor-Leste. That's a much more protracted conversation to have with a corporation to say how they will benefit. But but ultimately, we should remind everybody that we we all share the same planet. Uh, The planet's facing some pretty wicked thorny problems, whether it be climate change or inequality or food security, and we're all in this together. And um, without getting too righteous, 
the only way those problems will be really addressed is if we do work in collaboration with both the private and the state sectors. So all three of us coming together has to be the way to address those problems. Completely agree. Completely agree. So on that point, uh, if you could give some advice to the private sector, how, how can the private sector be more supportive and, and more useful to the not-for-profit sector? Um, gosh, it's a huge question. <laughs> I, I think that I'm a firm believer in action as opposed to dialogue, but there does have to be some conversations that you know, have to be shared in terms of um, taking time out to hear each other's business and each, each other's business imperatives. Um, from my conversations with the private sector, many are really getting right behind, uh, in terms of ESG, they're getting behind the environmental and the governance aspects. But their eyes glaze over when you talk about social change and social good. So um, I think the challenge is actually for us, as opposed to the, the private sector, how do we demonstrate value to them? How do we demonstrate what social good means to a corporation in terms of proving its shareholder wealth, its market share, its staff engagement, and its bottom line? Um, if we can't have those conversations, then the private sector won't really entertain us. So um, we don't need to sell our souls to, the, to um, the devil, but I do think we need to become far more commercially astute and actually come back to what I was saying before, having shared goals and realising that we, we do share the planet and uh, yeah, we've got to work on these things together. Yeah, that's a good point. And I, I think that reinforces the importance of things like outcome measurement and being able to really communicate your value at. Well, that's true. Yep. Yeah. Um, and I think the challenge for all of us is if we can't simplify that and have that conversation, we talk about elevator pitches, you know, if, if it's too protracted and too long, we'll lose people and we won't get, no, we won't get the partnerships we deserve. Yeah. Okay. So last question. It's another big question. Um, you've already been at Child Fund for, for 14 years, but uh, let's look forward another 10. What does success look like in 10 years for Child Fund? You ask all your interviews, this, don't you? This is your golden question. This is my golden um, question. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, it's such a – 10 years is a long way out but it goes in a flash. And I think success for us would be more joined up doing, not just joined up thinking. So going back to that earlier conversation about working in tandem with both the private and the state sector, I think for Child Fund it really means the realisation of those roadmaps that we've worked so hard to develop, increasing our presence in the Pacific and making sure that children where we work and all around the world, make sure those children are thriving and they've got genuine a greater voice and they're able to create uh, you know, better pathways for themselves and grow safely. That's what Child Fund is all about. But I also hope going broader than that for the whole sector, I think there's going to be the next 10 years real generational change. Um, I think the world's a very exciting place. It's a very joined up place, but it's also very fragmented. And I know for my own children, you know, the world of social media is just common, common speak for them. Um, there's a world of opportunity out there but that in itself is almost, almost Sophie's choice. There's too much opportunity. So how do we remain focused to, to achieve the impact that we all desire working in this space? For us, though, at Child Fund, I'd like us to be managing a whole portfolio of social enterprises that worked alongside our other fundraising initiatives um, that really address the thorny problems that we've, we've spent uh, many, many decades trying to address. This is a difficult business. If, if it was easy, we would be gone in 10 years. But 
Um, I don't think we will be. Um, I think the challenge will be to re- how we all remain relevant and remain active players in this space. But again, also respecting if we aren't relevant, get out of the way and let someone else do it. Um, so I'd like us to be around in 10 years. I think success is us having higher impact and being more effective. So it's a big, a big wish list, but um, it's, do- it's certainly doable. That's why we're all passionate and working in this space. It is doable, and certainly with your leadership at the helm, I think Child Fund is in very good hands. Paul, thank you so much for being on the show. This has been so enlightening. Thank you, Rachel. Thanks so much to you too, and this is great work too. So to all your listeners and uh, and to all your interviewees, you're doing great work. So thank you very much. Thank you.